So VCs want SaaS businesses because they want that hockey stick growth. If you're selling a hardware product, then in order to do 2x next year, what you did this year, you have to hire twice as many salespeople. And if you want a 10x, you have to hire 10x as many salespeople. Whereas if you're a SaaS business, then you have that recurring revenue. So your existing customers will keep paying you and you'll get another set of new customers. So it's a lot easier to scale fast and grow faster as a SaaS business with recurring revenue. Welcome back to Product Market Fit, a podcast all about startups and growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and I'm super excited to share today's interview with Tessa Lau, founder and CEO of Dusty Robotics. On this show, we've been too software-focused to date, and thanks to your feedback, I've decided to feature more hardware startups going forward. Tessa's story is a fascinating one, and the company that she has built is poised to disrupt the $10 trillion construction industry. I really enjoyed hearing from her about how Dusty Robotics tested early ideas without spending money on prototypes, learnings on human-robot interaction, and Tessa's thoughts on selling at the early stages, competition, and more. This is a fun one, so stay tuned. But first, big thanks go out to Leo Polovitz for introducing me to Tessa. If you have not listened to episode 28 with Leo, definitely check it out. It was a great one. My goal with this podcast is to share practical tips with founders and growth practitioners to increase the odds of success for your startup. Help others like you discover the pod by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts or by sharing the episode on social media. And as always, I love to hear from you, so email me at hello at pmfpod.com or reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. The Product Market Fit Podcast is brought to you by growth.co. That's growth without the O.co. Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to growth.co, that's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. Now here's my conversation with Tessa Lau, founder and CEO of Dusty Robotics. Hello, Tessa. Welcome to the show. I am thrilled to have you on today. I'm thrilled to be here. Very cool. So we've been talking mostly with software startups and this is the first hardware company that we're featuring on the podcast. We all know the cliches that bits are harder than bytes, that hardware is hard. You don't actually come from a hardware background. You started in data analytics and AI and software. How did you make that transition? Why did you make that transition? And what have you learned along the way? Yeah, it's been an amazing, interesting transition. So I started my career in computer science, got a PhD in CS and AI. That was actually back before it was called AI, but it was machine learning back then. And so I went to IBM Research in upstate New York for 10 years, 11 years, doing that enterprise automation and software. And then I kind of got bored. I learned everything I could learn. I'd done everything I wanted to do. And so I started looking around for something else. And I stumbled across robotics because one of my former managers at IBM had gone off to run this company called Willow Garage. Willow Garage was the first research lab for robotics of its kind. And they were running a project called Robots for Humanity. And Robots for Humanity was all about programming a humanoid robot to do activities of daily living for an adult who was wheelchair-bound and quadriplegic. He couldn't even scratch his nose when he was itchy. But through this Robots for Humanity project, he was able to program that humanoid robot to come over and scratch his nose when he needed it. And I just that, that hit me as so empowering because none of the software that I built to date could actually do anything like that. And so robots were just an order of magnitude more capable in the world. They could do things that software could not, but they also built on top of all of my skills in software. So I got into robotics. I joined Willow Garage, learned how to build robots, learned some of the challenges. And when Willow Garage went under, a number of us from Willow founded a company called Savioak. Savioak was my first robotics startup. I was the co-founder and CTO. And we were building robots that would deliver room service to guests staying in hotels using a mobile robot navigation platform. So that was how I got into robotics. And I love it. You know, robots are, are super cool. They capture everyone's imagination and they have the potential to actually solve things and do things for us in the real world, which is so much better than where I started in software. Fascinating journey. And I want to come back to some of those topics that you touched on, but why don't you tell us what is Dusty Robotics, what do you guys do, and who do you serve? 
Yeah. So Dusty Robotics is on a mission to empower builders to build more efficiently and do more with less. If you know anything about the construction industry, it touches all of our lives. Right now you're sitting in a product of the construction industry, but the means and methods that people have to actually build those buildings, it's still skilled workers using their hands. And the efficiency of the industry hasn't really changed in the last 50 years. In fact, it's gotten worse. And so there's a huge opportunity to bring automation and robotics into this industry to help us build houses cheaper, faster, uh, with less risk. We've identified several problems, and we're focusing on one specific problem where it's done by people, but it's really much better done by robots. And so the problem we're tackling at Dusty is that when you design a building today, you're designing it in software. And you come up with a full 3D model of the building, and then you ask people to crawl around on their hands and knees using string and chalk to mark out that design on the floor. Not so surprising, that's really hard to do. It's very painful on workers. And so they do the minimum necessary. And as a result, 95% of the information in that digital model never makes its way out into the field. It's lost. It's not used for construction. So Dusty actually solves this problem by taking that entire model, bringing it out into the field, which allows everyone in the field to have a much better understanding of what they're building, where they're putting it, why they're doing it, what everyone else around them is going to be doing. So instead of working off of the minimum amount of information necessary to build, they're working off a full, rich plan and drawing set, along with the ability to link to more information in the cloud as they need it through QR codes. And the problem that solves for our customers is it's really easy. It's accuracy, it's communication, and it's speed. Accuracy, which is that you know exactly what you see on the floor is exactly what was in your model. There's no question. You can trust that it's what you want. Communication, because you can see what everyone else is around you is going to be doing. And so instead of fighting over who does what and who made that mistake, you don't have those mistakes. You don't fight. It's a safer, more efficient, streamlined job site. And speed, because robots are just so much faster than people. Robots don't stop to take breaks. They don't have a cigarette. They don't show up sick for work. And so they're just out there doing their job day in and day out. And that efficiency combined with all the other advantages are allowing our customers to actually complete buildings weeks or months sometimes ahead of schedule because they have the benefit of robotics. And so Dusty is creating the first of its kind robotic layout printer. We call it a field printer that is streamlining this process and increasing the efficiency of the construction industry. Amazing. So for those who haven't seen what the robot looks like, adorable little R2-D2 that crawls around the floor. And it's basically essentially, a, like you said, a field printer that is translating the plans into actual writing on the floor so that the trades know where everything goes, you know, where the pipe needs to go, where the sheetrock needs to go, et cetera, et cetera. So all that information is being communicated. Is that information something that already existed in a digital form that let's say, a project manager would have been working off of? Do they need to do additional work to get that information into your system? Do you have to translate that somehow? How does that information get to the robot? Yeah, so our goal was to make as much of a drop-in replacement for the existing workflow as possible because we know that in order to make change in an industry, and we're actually asking this industry to change and do something different because layout has been done the same way for 5,000 years, actually. The chalk line was invented by the early Egyptians to build the pyramids. And that's still how we build buildings today. But the models that people build off of, those are actually digital files using designed in a tool such as Autodesk Revit or Autodesk AutoCAD, right? And those are common tools in the industry. So those digital models already exist. And so as we built out Dusty, we decided to make use of those existing data files and essentially provide a really simple export path to take those files and export them. It's like preparing a PDF for your inkjet printer to print. So you print a PDF. In our case, you print to Dusty. Yeah. I mean, this podcast is not about construction, and I don't know much about construction industry, but the concepts, I think, translate from company to company as it relates to how to get user adoption, behavior change is always one of the most difficult parts, especially in an industry like construction, which isn't known to be early adopters of technology. How did you overcome that when you're approaching your ideal customer profile, your prospects, and you're pitching the product? You have a message of cost savings, right? It's more accurate. There's going to be less rework. There's going to be less errors. You've got a value proposition to them, but there's probably some hesitance, whether it's mistrust of robots or generally mistrust of technology. How did you overcome that 
what did you learn along the way as you were going out and selling those first those first robots in the field? Yeah, I think there have been two key insights or factors that have allowed us to overcome that inertia. The first is my philosophy has always been that in order to create behavior change, you have to have a solution that's at least 10x better than the status quo. Because if you're just creating an incremental improvement, then there's not enough of a motivation to change. Right? You're doing things a little bit better, but think of all the risk that your customers are going to take when they think about adopting some new technology, especially if it's young and unproven, right? And so from the start, we've established that our system is 10x better. And that's measured in a number of different ways. It's in terms of accuracy because robots don't make mistakes. It's measured in terms of speed because robots are just so much faster than people, right? And those are easy to show to demonstrate to our customers that, yeah, of course, it's accurate. Yeah, of course, it's faster. And so with that 10x improvement, we've been able to convince people that they should try this out because they're going to get so much benefit from doing it our way versus the old way that they've already done it. The second factor or insight uh, is competition. That You might be surprised by that, but HP came on the market with their site print this year. And when that started happening, we noticed a distinct shift in the kinds of conversations we were having with prospective customers. Before HP, it was, yeah, you know, I'm not sure that this thing works. I got to see it to believe it. Maybe this robotic layout thing is real. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I'm skeptical. After our competition emerged, suddenly it was different. It was, oh, well, I guess this is a real market because of big players in this space now. They're building the same product that you guys are. Now I get to look for the market leader and I get to pick one. And it's not a question of if automated layout is going to be adopted, it's which one. And that has validated the market for us. And it's allowed us to help keep pushing forward into this industry because now everyone is accepting that this is going to be a thing. Of course, people are going to be using automated layout in the future. That's so interesting. And what you said about the 10X, I see it kind of going both ways. And, and guests on the podcast, other founders have also had differing opinions where some say you need to be 10X better and others believe that if you're slightly better and there's an ROI to your product, then you can have a meaningful advantage in the market. And I think it hinges on how much of an established market you're playing in. So if you're trying to create the market as you were, then you absolutely need to be 10x better. But if you're there in a market that people understand and they're just looking at competitive alternatives, then if you're marginally better, that could be enough. Uh, speaking of your competition, I, I guess it's kind of a double-edged sword because HP is doing a lot of the customer education for you right now. But on the other hand, your startup, HP, has got you know hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, revenue and brand that they've built up over decades. How do you think about competition from the big guys and also some other uh, robotics companies that have emerged that are doing similar products as well? Yeah. So if there are other startups out there listening to this podcast that are worried about big companies coming into their space and competing with them on the same grounds, this is what I would say. In our case, HP is a big company. They're an enterprise. They've been around the block a number of times. They have a lot of resources at their disposal, but they also sell and market thousands of products. This product is one of many that they sell. And that is meaningful because for Dusty, our product is life or death. If we aren't successful, we die. And so we are much more motivated to solve this problem than HP is or that any of our competition is. So what that means is that we have a laser focus on exactly what we need to do to be successful, right? We are very customer centric. We are customer first. We are focused on solving the problems. We are not focused on just building another consumer grade product. We are focusing on solving the problem for our customers. And that's a very different business model than our competition has. If they are just in it to create a commodity and sell that commodity, then uh, that puts them at a disadvantage when a customer doesn't want to buy a piece of hardware, they want to solve their problem. And because we understand that and we're focused on that, what that means is that the robot that we built is one way that we solve that problem, but there's all these other components. There's all these other parts of the puzzle that our competition is not even thinking about and that we are focusing on and we are solving because we understand our customer. We know what it takes for our customers to be successful. And yes, hardware is one part of that, but so is this piece of software and this piece of software and this process improvement and this workflow. And we are putting together a package that ties all of those things together. And that's what we deliver. And that's why we're not truly competing with someone who's just selling a commodity product. 
What about as it relates to bundling? Because that is often the biggest fear of a big player. If you look at what Microsoft did with Teams to essentially, I don't want to say kill Slack, it's still a great product and has a lot of users, but you know, Slack is at 20 to 30 million users and, and Teams went from zero to 200 or 300 million users in a matter of a few months because it was just bundled into Office. You know, Google's doing the same thing to Calendly now. Hopefully they survive, a great product, great company, but when you're an established player that has distribution, you can bundle products to really make it a, a no-brainer for customers to not even consider the specialty point solution. Obviously, I hope that doesn't happen for Dusty with HP, but how are you thinking about that? Is that something that you've come across? Yeah, you got to play the game that's presented to you, right? You know, you look at the cards that you're dealt and you play that hand. In our case, our competition doesn't come from the construction industry. So it's not like they have a portfolio of products and this is yet another one of them that they're adding to their bundle. They are breaking into a new industry for the first time. And so in that case, we're the incumbent. You know, we've been here for years and we understand this industry. So you know, I'm not at all worried about that in this case. Okay, fair enough. Let's look at competition from one more angle. There's the current status quo, which is chalk. Obviously, we all see even some people who are you know, myself not in the industry understand how that's inefficient and prone to inaccuracies. Then you've got dusty pioneering a new method of digital printing in the field with robots. And you've got competitors out there that are rushing to do something similar. If you fast forward, I don't know how many years out, could there be other competitive alternatives like, for example, VR goggles? So if every trade person on a construction site is using VR goggles, they don't necessarily need to have writings on the floors or walls or et cetera. It's all there on their heads up displays. Is that a future that's near? Is that a competitive alternative that you think about? How do you consider that? So what I'm seeing with AR technology today is that it's not precise enough for construction. It's fine for video games and for, you know, navigating information. It's not precise enough to build at the resolution that the construction industry needs because things need to go down with better than an eighth of an inch accuracy. And the drift that we have currently with AR is not sufficient. So I see it as being a little ways off. There's other factors that are going to impede the adoption of AR as well. One of them is, I will be honest, there's a dorkiness factor to AR equipment and construction people care how they look. And if it makes them look like a dork on a construction site, they're not going to use it. So that's another factor. And I think another factor which people might overlook is that you got to look at the cost of these things. And on a typical construction site, let's say you're building a hospital, you might have 2,000 people on that site. Are you going to spring? Who's going to spring for 2,000 pairs of AR goggles for everyone on that job site to use in order to see what they're supposed to do? Right? That's really expensive. And so you think of the actual cost of deploying a solution like that. You have to think about the realities of how are you actually going to operationally deploy the solution. And that doesn't seem realistic to me. Much easier to use one robot, print all that information on the ground, then everyone can see it without specialized hardware. That makes sense. Let's go back to some of the early days of Dusty. When we first spoke, you told me that your journey was choosing the market first, problem second, and product last. How did you go about doing that? Why did you choose construction? How did you come to the field printer as your initial foray into the market? Yeah. So I'll tell the longer version for your audience because I think you'll appreciate this. So when we started Dusty, it was my co-founder, Phil and I, and we were coming out of a Savvy Oak, another robotics company, which wasn't really getting traction in the market. And so we wanted to find an industry where we could actually find product market fit and see that amazing growth that successful companies have by creating a product that the industry actually really needs. I didn't know anything about construction, but I was in the middle of a house remodel. And so I'd hired my first general contractor and he was sending people to my house with hand tools doing construction on their hands and knees. And I was horrified because it was so inefficient and it was all manual labor. And, you know, I come from automation and robotics and I'm like, you know, why aren't there any robots doing these jobs? It was so inefficient because none of the automation that we're accustomed to seeing in other industries have made its way into construction. So I started looking at the industry and I bought a hard hat, bought some steel-toed boots, networked my way onto construction sites and started talking to superintendents and foremen and project managers and learning about this industry. And the more I saw, the more I saw opportunities where automation could come in and streamline the process. And so the search for the problem was basically a lot of interviews, customer interviews, customer discovery, 
that I and Phil were doing with people from the industry as they were teaching us about this industry, we were proposing solutions to them. And I learned early on that if you ask a construction worker, what kind of robot do you want? They're going to give you, I would ask 10 people and I would get 12 answers. And the vast majority of those 12 robot ideas were not buildable. They were not feasible using current technology. And even if they were feasible, they weren't very valuable because people typically come up with, you know, I did this job when I first started out, I was a teenager and I got hired to do this like really low paid work. They hired me to sweep this whatever, right? And so they want a robot to do that job because they hated that job. And the problem was, well, if you can hire a teenager to do it at minimum wage, it's probably not a good business to build, right? So instead of listening to our customers and asking them what they wanted, Phil and I would come up with hypotheses. We would say, oh, you know, it looks like you're doing this thing. What if we gave you a robot to do that instead? And the problem with that approach is that no one wants to pop your bubble. No one wants to tell you your robot idea is a bad idea. And so everyone would say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I know someone who might want to use that. Right? <laughs> and that's kind of the kiss of death for any product idea, because if they don't need it, then it's always someone else's problem. You're never going to get your customers. And so we started doing A-B testing. Instead of presenting someone with one idea, we would say, we have two ideas. What do you think of this idea versus this idea? And that way, people are able to open up more and say, oh, okay, that's an idea. That's an okay idea. But this other idea, I like that a lot more, right? They don't have to tell you one idea is crappy. They can just tell you which one they like better. And so we followed that process, that methodology, and we iterated. We had like 12 different ideas of robots that we could build for the construction industry. We tested them all with various people, and we actually ended up at the idea that we have now. So were you testing actual prototypes or just simply telling them a story about it? We would tell them stories. Yeah. We didn't actually build anything because I didn't want to actually build anything until we knew what we were going to build. Sure. And with hardware, it's extremely hard to be iterating on completely different products and to find that product market fit because at that stage, it's really just about shots on goal, right? Mm -hmm. You have limited time, limited cash, and you have to use that wisely. And if you are building prototypes that you're going to throw away, that's a waste of your time. Yeah, I love that A-B testing, so to speak, of giving them alternatives because people will tell you what they want to hear often when you're doing user feedback, right? And that's why, you know, when it comes to even software startups, asking people, would you use this? Almost always people say, sure, sure. But if you ask people to start paying for it, <laughs> it's a different story. That's when you have product market fit, when people are paying for it and they're not churning, right? It's not when people say, oh yeah, that's so cool. I love it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it's hard to get people to pay for something that doesn't exist. And so you have to find other ways to do that kind of testing before you have the physical hardware. I love that. So you were A-B testing different ideas to get a relative value and get their feedback and opinion. How'd you go from there to deciding this is the one we're going to go all in on Dusty's first product? Yeah. So I'll tell you two stories there. We went through this iteration phase and actually at the time that we got our first pre-seed investor, the best idea that we'd come up with at that point was a vacuum cleaning robot. This is actually why we're called Dusty Robotics, was because I thought we'd be sweeping up the dust on construction sites. And it still works. Construction sites are dusty, you know. Exactly, right? I figured it was a cute name and we love it. It's very dusty, very us. And so we thought we were going to be building a vacuum cleaner robot. So Phil and I, we actually spent a day on a construction site sweeping and measuring the density of the garbage that we would have to suck up and trying to figure out like what the specifications would have to be for a vacuum cleaning robot. And as we were doing that, we saw marks on the ground and we asked our host, well, what are those? Where did those come from? And then they explained to us the chalk line snapping method and the layout process. And we were like, well, what if we build a robot that could do that for you instead? And their eyes lit up and they were like, oh my God, yes, I would pay you for that. And that's kind of when we knew we had the idea. And so we kept testing it. You know, would you prefer a vacuum cleaning robot or a layout robot? And the interesting thing that happened was that people would start showing us pictures on their phone of a Roomba that they had in their garage workshop that they had strapped a pen to, to try to get it to solve this layout problem. And so we knew we were onto something because people were actually spending their own money and using their own weekend time to solve this problem. It was such a pain point for them that they were trying to solve this problem in the only way they knew how, which was cobbling together existing bits and components and trying to build something. And so that was about, you know, when we started hearing those stories, about 25% of the people we talked to had something like this in their garage. That was when we knew, yeah, you know, I think, I think this is it. 
we're going to build this product. And so we started buying hardware. That was October of 2018. So we bought our first piece of hardware and started writing code to make the robot go. And that's how we got started. Fascinating. So how did you go about with sales and marketing in those early days? Was it just knocking on doors? I can't imagine a more different industry from the Bay Area tech companies to selling to construction sites across America. How did you go about that? So we have always built in public and I do not believe in stealth. So we had a website from day one, even though we didn't know, you know, everything about the construction industry or about our market or about the product. We launched that website. I built it in Wix with just what we thought it would be. And when you're a startup and you don't have the full product developed yet, especially in hardware, because it takes a while, you have to project the image of being farther along than you are, right? You don't want to tell everyone, oh, this is a prototype. Eh, it doesn't really work, but we'll get there, right? You want to create that fiction that you're a real company. You've got a real product and it's being used, right? Because that's what gives your customers the confidence to go with you and buy it and, you know, become customers, become bigger customers. They don't want to take a risk, especially in construction where there's a lot of hesitation and skepticism around new technology. You want to present to them the facade that this is real, that you're not doing pilots, you're selling a product, right? And there's a lot at stake, right? Cost and safety. Yeah, exactly. And this is a high risk thing that we do, right? If you get layout wrong, you're building the wrong building and that could be really expensive. So people are putting their trust in us and our product. And so we have to be mature enough, appear to be mature enough to warrant that trust, right? So we had a website from day one and I created some marketing collateral and my team and I, we had a, a biz dev intern back then. We would actually drive around the Bay Area and leave flyers at construction sites at the trailer or at the office. And actually one of those flyers ended up in the hands of a project exec at a local drywall company. And at this time we had been doing pilots, just like testing the product throughout all of 2019. I told you we bought our first hardware at the fall of 2018. Starting in January of 2019, every month that year, we actually took a new version of the prototype out onto a different job site and tried it. And we would ask our friends on that job site, what do you think? We'd get their feedback. It would never do everything it needed to do. And so we would use their feedback to come back to the lab, iterate, and next month, take it out again onto another site with a different prospective customer. Were you charging for those pilots? No, we were not charging because the robot wasn't really doing anything useful at the start. And, you know, but as we went through 2019, it got better and better and better. And so in the fall of 2019, we started engaging with this project exec who had gotten this flyer that we dropped off at his office. And he said, okay, I've got a project for you. It's a medical office building just up the street from us where we were. And, you know, come out and try your robot. I see the potential. I think this is really cool. I could see this being really beneficial to me and my industry. And so I want, you know, see what you guys can do. So we brought our robot out. It took two engineers to run it back then. So we sent two engineers and two laptops and their entire company actually went out onto that job site. And we did that job and it was hard. It was challenging. It was the hardest job we had done to date. But when we were done, that project exec said, oh, you guys actually did a really good job. Send us an invoice. And I was like, what's an invoice? <laughs> I don't know how to charge for this thing because I've never had to charge before. So I Googled how to create an invoice and I asked him, like, what do you think is a fair price? And he said, oh, about $5,000. And so I said, all right, here's an invoice for $5,000. And we still have that check framed on our front desk because that was the first paid job that we actually ended up doing. And it was supposed to be a free pilot, but we just successfully executed with our prototype at that stage. And it was enough to start earning money. Yeah. So as soon as you're delivering value, then you can start charging that's a really good segue to business model. So you guys are leasing these devices, selling the devices, offering it as a service, so you're sending out a technician. How does it work? We followed a pattern that is actually pretty common in robotics. So what we did was we started selling layout as a service. So like this check that we got for our first job, right? We started by having our team operate the robot and what our customers would pay for is the marks on the ground. And if they were made by a robot, great. If they were made by our team using chalk lines because our robot malfunctioned, great, right? Either way, they would pay us and we'd put the marks on the ground. And so because we followed that, we were able to work around issues with you know, robot malfunctions or early software that didn't do everything it needed to do. 
and we were able to give our customers a complete product, which was the layout on the ground. After a while of that, after about a year, our customers started coming to us and saying, you know, that looks pretty easy what you're doing. I bet we can do that. Why don't you let us operate the robot? And at the same time, we had some pressure from the unions. San Francisco is a very union-heavy town. And so the unions were coming to our door and saying, that work that you're doing is protected union labor. It needs to be done by a union member. You guys should join the union. And so we decided that was not aligned with our strategy for many reasons. We weren't ready for it. You know, it still took a very skilled engineer to run the robot and troubleshoot it when it went wrong. But we had hired some really smart people from the construction industry who were able to learn that and were operating it for us. And so our early field engineers, we decided, okay, you guys are no longer going to run the robots. You're going to teach our customers how to run the robots. So we did that on our first job. Our team was standing right next to our customer every moment of of every day that they were running that robot. If something went wrong, they would tell them what to type into the command line to fix it. Or if, you know, something went wrong that they couldn't diagnose in the field, they would call up our tech support guy in-house and together the three of them would solve the problem. And through that, we were able to launch what we now call our concierge business. And so concierge was our first step towards being essentially an equipment provider to the construction industry. Concierge was like a daily rental service. If you needed layout done on this project, you would call up Dusty. Dusty would bid out that job and we would send out a, a robot and a trainer to teach you how to run it and make sure that your job's complete successfully. So we did that for probably about a year. And then at that point, the robot was doing well enough. It was independent enough, I would say, that we thought, you know, we can probably go nationwide with this. And so we launched our annual subscription business. So our bread and butter now is a subscription. You pay for a year's worth of robot rental. It's actually a subscription because it comes not only with the robot set, but with services, with support, with upgrades, maintenance, software licenses, all of that is included in one package and our customers are paying for that and they're able to use our product on as many jobs as they want. So it's basically like an unlimited use subscription where they get to take advantage of the robot on all of their projects. Did the decision-making around business model have anything to do with how your target customer thinks about OPEX versus CAPEX? Is that part of the calculus that goes into it? Because the decision around business model is such a crucial decision. Sometimes I feel like companies kind of default into something that others are doing, but it sounds like you were really intentional about it. I would love to kind of peel back the onion there. Yeah, we thought a lot about it and we're still thinking about it. We have to navigate, we have to find the compromise between something that's VC friendly and something that's customer friendly. Those are our two major constituents, right? We're a VC-backed startup. I need to be able to continue to raise VC funding to keep us going until we can IPO. And so VCs want SaaS businesses. And because they want that hockey stick growth, if you're selling a hardware product, then in order to do 2x next year, what you did this year, you have to hire twice as many salespeople. And if you want a 10x, you have to hire 10x as many salespeople. Whereas if you're a SaaS business, then you have that recurring revenue. And so in order to 2x next year, all you need to do is do again this year what you do next year, assuming none of them churn, right? So your existing customers will keep paying you and you'll get another set of new customers. So it's a lot easier to scale fast and grow faster as a SaaS business with recurring revenue. So that's what VCs are looking for. That's the gold standard in startups. And so a subscription model is similar to a SaaS business, right? When you subscribe to Dusty, you sign on for an annual contract with Auto Renew, where next year, assuming you're still happy with the service, you just re-up it and you get to keep using it, right? And so from a VC perspective, that model actually works really well. From the construction industry, it's a little bit of an uphill battle. We are asking them to do things in a way that they're not necessarily comfortable doing. And the challenge is because in construction, budgets go on a project-by-project -project basis. They don't have annual corporate budgets. They have a project budget. And so when you're building this hospital, your Kaiser or Sutter Health or whatever is going to pay you so many millions of dollars to build this hospital. When that hospital wraps you're on to the next project and you have no certainty that there is going to be a next project unless you manage to bid and win that work. So it's hard for our customers to swallow an annual subscription, but 
because we are the market leader and because we are able to set the price, because we're delivering so much value to the industry, we've been able to make that stick. And I won't say it's been easy. It's still a challenge, but we're doing what's right for the business. And there are reasons why it's good for our customers as well. The main reason it's good for our customers is because everyone's been in the situation where they buy an iPhone and two months later, there's a new iPhone out and they don't get to use the new features. Because you're on the subscription package, you always get the latest and greatest. And because we are developing the product so fast and we can show our customers how this is like so much different than it was a year ago. And, you know, even in three months, we have new features available to you. They buy into that and they get why they have to do it this way. And so it becomes something that they're willing to work with us on in order to get access to this. Very interesting. Are you continuing to experiment and looking at new models in the future? Or do you feel like you're kind of settled into what you think will be the model for at least the foreseeable future? I would say yes and yes. We have a model that works. And so we're going to keep doing it. But I'm always looking at like, how do we do this better? Is there something that we could be doing better than what we're doing now? Got it. Okay. Let's talk about human and robot interaction. So Dusty's got these big, cute, maybe melancholy eyes that you often see on anthropomorphized robots. I'm sure that was an intentional design decision that relates to human-robot interaction. Can you speak to kind of how people in the field are seeing the robot? Do they feel competitive with it from a jobs perspective? Is it kind of a safety thing? All of the angles there as it relates to personifying these things. So the eyes on our robots are a CEO mandate. So I'm requiring eyes on all of our robots. And the reason why it's an HRI issue, human robot interaction issue. My experience is that there's a lot of fear when people think about robots and they're worried about robots taking their jobs. And the construction industry is particularly bad because there's a lot of less skilled labor that was really concerned about holding on to their livelihoods. And so what the eyes are for us is like a self-defense mechanism for our robots. They make the robot cute and they're just like, you know, babies that they're born with big eyes and they're cute so that you'll love them. That's what the eyes do for our robots. They make them cute so that people love them. They want them to be successful. They want to help them. When they see our robots struggling, they want to come over and like fix it because they start thinking of it not as a tool that's going to replace them, but as a collaborator, as a coworker, as a friend who's helping them do their job better. And that's all part of the master plan to get more robots on job sites, right? If people are scared of them, if they're skeptical, then they're less likely to want these robots on their job sites. But if they're viewed as friendly and approachable and easy to use and non-threatening, then it paves the way for more adoption. And so all of that design plays into that long-term world domination plan. Yeah. What about from a jobs perspective? So recently it's been a lot of the new cycle and I feel like it's somewhat hypocritical because as long as let's call them robots, but generally AI automation, if it's taking jobs in factories or truck drivers, I don't know uh, how many people really cared, but suddenly with generative AI, most recently, if it's going to take lawyers' jobs and writers' jobs and developers' jobs, now we suddenly need to be worried about it. It seems a little hypocritical to me. Is that something that you feel acutely with the target market that you're dealing with? You mentioned that low-skilled labor in the construction industry. I know that construction also has a labor shortage as well. Also with unions, construction is heavily unionized. How do you think about the job market and job loss as relates to robots and AI? So... I love the whole generative AI trend because it's waking people up to what's happening and what's been happening for a long time in robotics and other industries. So, you know, warehouses now are often run by robots. If you think about like Amazon investing in Kiva so many years back, right? They were taking jobs that were done by warehouse workers and replacing them with robots that are moving materials around inside of a warehouse or distribution center. And that's been happening for a long time, but no one really cared because, you know, they're not coming for us, right? And so I think it's great to see generative AI come along because it's evening the playing field, right? Automation is coming for everyone. And robotics companies just happen to have been there first because we've been facing these issues for a lot longer. So the way I look at it, technology is going to level up all jobs. It's going to be applied across industries, not just in one specific industry, not just for one specific role. It's coming for everyone and it's going to change the nature of work. And that's what I find fascinating. It doesn't mean work goes away, 
there's always going to be the need for human creativity, human problem solving, human ingenuity, even on construction sites, because what I love about construction is that it's like this constant problem solving process. Something's always going wrong, whether it's materials not showing up on time, whether it's someone going on strike, whether it's, you know, some challenge doing due to the site conditions like flooding or something, right? And so people are always going to be needed to figure out how to direct the robots to do their jobs. And the cool thing about robots is that people are no longer responsible for the painful, dirty, dangerous jobs, right? We're taking those things out of the responsibility of the workforce, giving people better tools to do them in safer ways with less strain on their bodies. And we're leveling up people to be not just manual laborers that are doing backbreaking work, but skilled problem solvers that are deciding when and where to deploy the robotic automation that they have to get the job done. And I think that's a great thing for the industry, especially the construction industry, because it's going to attract more people to the industry who want to do that more challenging, meaningful work. And we need it because buildings don't build themselves. ChatGPT doesn't build buildings. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> I do somewhat enjoy the irony of the folks that were saying, you know, telling truck drivers and factory workers to learn to code are now being replaced by what is it, GPT Copilot and other tools. Exactly. What did you learn about hardware the hard way with Savvy Oak? So that was your first foray into robotics. The company's still around, if I'm not mistaken, but it wasn't a resounding success as you would have expected it to be. What were some of the key lessons there? Oh, I would say that we probably made all the mistakes. <laughs> in hardware. The biggest learning that I have from Savioke is that you really need to have the problem identified first before you build the hardware. We made that mistake at Savioke, and I think that was the biggest mistake that we made. We built the hardware first, and then we tried to find a market for it. And when that happens, you have all this sunk cost. You've invested so much in building this thing. You don't want to scratch it, scrap it, and start over. And so you try to find someone who's going to buy it. And we did that in hotels and we thought that people would need to move toothbrushes around because, you know, you stay at a hotel, you forget your toothbrush, let's build a robot to send it to your door. It turns out that hotels actually would have wanted us to transport linens, bedding, pillows, right? We didn't design a robot that had that capacity. So it was an uphill battle trying to sell the thing that we had built to hotels that actually wanted something different. And so that's why when we started Dusty, we didn't build any hardware at first. Right? We spent a lot of time gathering requirements, trying to understand the problem, figure out what all the corner cases would be before we built our first hardware. And that's because it's so expensive to build hardware. You don't have time to do it many times. You don't have a lot of shots on goal. And so every shot that you take has to count. And that requires foresight. It requires customer discovery. What specifically are you doing to ensure that's successful in advance? It's a lot of customer discovery. It's like always talking to customers. It's continually testing your hypotheses. Like even today, when I'm on a customer call, I'm thinking about what's coming next beyond this robot. And I'm testing those ideas with customers today. Every time I'm in front of a customer, I'm trying to find a way to work in something that I think we could do next and getting their feedback on it. And that's been true since the beginning, right? I've always been doing that. I'm always looking for validation of what we are building, what we could be building. Because the only way you're going to get that product market fit is by making sure that you and your customers are aligned on what the product is and what value is it going to bring to them. Fantastic. So what is that vision long-term? If you fast forward five years out, what kind of robots is Dusty building? Are you guys able to build buildings from scratch using robotics? What do you see the future looking like? Yeah, my goal for Dusty is for us to become a generational company. I want our robots to be used on construction sites for generations to come. And so it's not just going to be one robot. It's not just going to be our field printer. We're going to have a family of robots that are all increasing the efficiency of the construction industry. As part of that vision, I'm sure we'll IPO at some point. I'm sure we'll create more robots and design more robots and get them out into the world. My immediate goal is getting a robot on every construction site by 2025. And I think that's really ambitious, but I think it's also doable given the traction that we have in the industry and where we're going. And so you want to know like what's coming next for us. Well, I'm not going to tell you about a robot, but I am going to tell you about something that can be done with our existing robot that I think is super cool. And that I just validated it this morning with a prospective customer. Our robot prints QR codes. 
It's a printer. It can print a lot of things. It prints lines, prints text, prints QR codes. The interesting thing about QR codes is what it enables on a construction site. So I said before, 95% of the information in your digital model doesn't make it out into the field. QR codes allow you to bring more of that information out into the field. And not only that, but it allows you to bring information back from the field into your model or into your management system. So imagine the workflow where you're standing on the job site, you're an electrician, you're walking onto this hospital project, you scan a code on the floor with your phone, it knows you're an electrician, it knows that you're in the initial stages of construction, the rough-in phase, and so it gives you the list of the 10 outlets that you need to install in this suite. And so there's your checklist. As you install those outlets, you're checking them off in this app. And so because you're doing that, it's making sure that you're doing the right thing, because you're doing that, the guys back in the office have a real-time view of exactly what work is happening today. And if you're delayed for whatever reason, you know, your truck had a flat tire on the way to work, they can see that they can put a plan into place in real time to get that project back on track rather than waiting for the end of the week when you submit all of your documentation about the work that you and your crew did this week. And so that is going to massively speed up construction because it's making the workforce instrumented and making it possible to see what's going on in real time, which they don't have today. So I'm continuing to test that idea but I'm really excited about it because it's something that we can do with the existing product with just more software and more layers on top of it that could really be the next big jump in construction. Absolutely. Well, folks, you heard it here first. I think it's a fantastic idea. I'm loving this. This is all fascinating stuff, but we do need to close out with our traditional lightning round. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Let me know the first thing that comes to your mind. Sound good? All right, go for it. All right. What's one book podcast, and or newsletter that you find yourself recommending most often? For startups looking for product market fit, I recommend Steve Blank's Four Steps to the Epiphany. Best reference ever on customer discovery. You don't need to read the whole book, just the first three chapters. I have not read that one, so thank you for that. I definitely will add that to my reading list. What's a piece of terrible advice that you've received in your career? <laughs> my first job out of school was IBM Research, and IBM was about 400,000 people at that time. And I had a mentor who was a IBM fellow and you know knew his way around the organization. And I thought naively that I was going to meet everyone. I was going to network. I was going to meet like all the other researchers in my organization, find out what they're doing. And he told me, don't do that. There's too many people. You're going to waste your time. And that was terrible advice because some of the people I met during that networking phase when I first started IBM, I still know today. And we're still friends and we're still helping each other you know, with our respective businesses. And so never pass up an opportunity to network. I love that. Very good. What's a productivity habit or a hack that you swear by? Inbox zero. Every day? Not every day. My goal is about once a week to get to inbox zero. When I'm traveling, it's particularly hard because stuff comes in and I can't deal with it as fast. But yeah, it's the philosophy of like trying to touch things only once. You know, the getting things done philosophy. It doesn't belong in your inbox unless you need to respond to it right now. If it's something that needs more sustained focus work, it goes off into a to-do list to get it out of the inbox. Because the more times you touch something, you're just wasting your time just opening the same emails multiple times. Fantastic. I am very jealous of you. I wish I could get to inbox zero. I have to try that. I have read that book though, the Get Shit Done. I have an app for Gmail. It's an add-on that shows me a picture of a cute cat every time I hit inbox zero. So that's my motivation. Oh, there you go. I like that. Reward mechanism. Mm -hmm. What's one thing you'd like to change about the startup world? One thing that I'd like to change about the startup world is, oh, that's interesting. One of the challenges we have is hiring. And one of the reasons it's hard to hire is because there's a perception that startups are risky. I felt this when I was starting Dusty, right? You know, was I really going to take the risk of starting another company? After I thought about it, and as I'm thinking about it now, it's not really that much of a risk. Because worst case, I have this experience. I'd be a CEO for a year, six months, whatever it is. Turns out it's been over five years and counting. And I'll have that experience on my resume and whatever thing I do next, I will have had that check mark on my belt. And the same is true for anyone we hire. It's not that risky because there are a lot of startups out there. They all need talent. If one goes under, you will find another one, right? You are skilled. That's the reason you're in this industry. And so the one thing I would change is that perception that you're taking a risk when you're starting a startup. Yeah, you know, that one might go down, but there are many others like them out there that are coming up and starting and are going to give you that opportunity for growth. And there are so many more benefits to working at a startup. In one year in a startup, you learn what you would learn in 10 years at a bigger company. And that opportunity for growth and learning and development is just unparalleled. So 
please, let's fix that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that there's been this misconception that a corporate job or a job at the Fangs, they are safe. And we see time and time again that they're no safer than a job, a startup. It's all a journey and it's not a straight line. So you just got to take what's rewarding, what's fulfilling, what you're going to learn on and move with it, right? Last one here. What is a principle or core value that you live by or try to live by? Anyone who talks to me knows that I am passionate about efficiency. This relates to Inbox Zero because that's part of my efficiency strategy. I believe we have a limited number of days on earth and I want to make every single one count. And so I try to get as much done in a day as I can while still protecting my outside of work time. I work about 45 hours a week. And the only way that's possible is by being ruthless about efficiency. I book 30-minute meetings. We get shit done in that time. And we figure out how to move the business forward in that limited amount of time that we all have to build this thing and make it great. Yeah. Well, I know how much you value time and I couldn't be more grateful for you having spent some of it with me and sharing your wisdom, your experience here. If you can close us out, share with us, how can people find you if they want to continue the conversation and any additional thoughts or advice that you want to leave us with? Absolutely. So our website is dustyrobotics.com. Check us out. We've got a YouTube channel with lots of videos of cute robots on them, as well as customers talking about why they love them. And you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you, Tessa. I'm wishing you tons of success and appreciate your time here. Thanks so much. Absolutely. This was fun. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening and joining me on this learning adventure. My goal with this podcast is to share practical tips with founders and growth practitioners to help you on your startup journey. If you like this episode, please drop a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others like you find us. And I always love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out at hello at pmfpod.com or on LinkedIn or Twitter. Finally, don't forget to check out growth.co, that's growth without the O.co, if you're considering a fractional CMO for your startup. Until next time, wishing you rocket ship success in your startup journey.